the holy gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Now Jesus returned to the synagogue, and a person was there who had a withered hand. And the women and men in the synagogue were watching him carefully to see whether he would cure the person on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Then Jesus said to the person who had the withered hand, Come up to the middle. Then Jesus said to the women and men in the synagogue, Is it permissible to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And looking around at them with anger, Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the person, stretch out your hand. And the person stretched it out and their hand was restored. Then the Pharisees went out with the Herodians and immediately began to conspire against Jesus, how they might destroy him. Then Jesus with his disciples departed to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat at hand for him because of the crowd of women, children, and men, lest they crush him. For he had cured many, so that as many as had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, when they saw him, they fell down before him and shrieked, You are the Son of God! But Jesus rebuked them strongly, not to make him known. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you. of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I, I like this pulpit swap thing, Ledley. Thank you. Joshua is at the Church of the Epiphany. Uh, that is where he did his field placement, or I guess we call it CXM now for those who know the jargon of the Virginia Theological Seminary. He was there during his seminarian years, then he went off to Arkansas and got ordained and came back, and uh, I, th I hope, I just got a message that the service is completed, so I hope he had a wonderful time. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Uh, I currently serve as the rector at the Church of the Epiphany, which is located in downtown D.C. It is situated on the ancestral grounds of the Piscataway and Nashatonic peoples. Uh, prior to serving at, I've been at Epiphany now, I'm, I used to be a runner, so I'm in the seventh mile. This is my seventh year 
of serving at Epiphany. Prior to that, I served as an interim rector, still in the Diocese of Washington. Before that, I served in the Diocese of Maryland, probably about six or seven years. And before that, I served in the Diocese of Atlanta for about eight and a half years. And prior to that, I was an undergraduate student at the historically black college of Spelman, which is an awesome institution. Thanks. I don't know if that's a clap, but I like it. I mean, if you're a, if you're a Howard Bison, H-U, you know. After uh, I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I was telling the forum group, Tulsa, Oklahoma is not quite Midwest. It is definitely not Southwest. It is the Bible Belt. It is part of the buckle of the Bible Belt. Oral Roberts is, is his institution is there. Jimmy Swaggart hung out there for a while. Billy Graham, all of the great TV evangelists. I grew up watching that. Uh, I did not choose that route, clearly. But being in Oklahoma, religion was part and parcel of everything. And so uh, there were some problems that I encountered. I would say there, it might be some hypocritical stuff. And so I was like, well, I need to explore this just a little bit more deeply. And so I went on a full-on religious quest. I told the earlier service I was Hindu for the first semester of eighth grade. Second semester, I shifted to Buddhism. And I tried Buddhism for about a year and a half. Turns out that there are not a lot of black Buddhists in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. And so if you wanted to do Buddhism with other people, it didn't work out for me. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's shift over to Christianity and see what that has to offer. I did go to an Episcopal school. I went to an Episcopal school from fourth through 12th grade. I had three chaplains. All three chaplains were very helpful as I was doing this spiritual quest. Um, at one point, Father um, Father Young said, well, Glenna, when are you going to come to the Episcopal Church? And I was like, never. I'm going to go to all of the other churches because I know what this looks like. But I didn't know what it looks like. And so at, at the conclusion of high school, when I was an adult, um, I was confirmed. Uh, and this did not coincide with the ways in which my parents felt like we should exercise our faith life. And so I had to wait till I was 18 for confirmation because at the, I'm an adult. I can do what I want, right? I was confirmed. And then as the scripture says, I continued to grow in wisdom and knowledge. I went off to college, went to college in California for my first year at a women's, at an all-women's institution, which is now, I think, closed, Mills College in Oakland, California, transferred to Spelman, a historically black institution. It was at Spelman. Uh, I was there during the Olympics, 1996. And um, yeah, I was kind of churchy, went to church when it made sense and didn't go to church when it wasn't convenient. And I was walking to the swimming pool. There's a new big swimming pool that had been built at Georgia Tech. That's where all the Olympians would do their thing. So I just had to go dip my big toe in it because that's cool, right? And I got off the MARTA station, and there was this magnificent, beautiful building. And I went, and I checked the door, and it was unlocked. And I was like, huh, okay, well, let's pray. And it was in that moment 
that I realized that's where I was supposed to be. It was through that church. It would be through ordained ministry. It would be through Christianity that I would be able to live into God's call to me to be part of changing the world. Now, I am well past those early, expansive possibility days. And I am now firmly entrenched in the slow, grinding, steady ministry of the work of justice. It has not been without challenge, and my body holds both the joy and the trauma of being a melanated leader in a female body. And while I have shared in the broadest brushstrokes a little bit about my own story, I hope that it helps to orient you just a bit to who I am. It is true that we are rooted or situated in a patriarchal society, a society that seeks to protect systems of injustice in an effort to maintain white power structures. And this happens outside of these church walls, and it happens inside of the confines of the Episcopal Church. Uh, there's a book called This Here Flesh. I have it somewhere. I had it. I lose myself. <laughs> this Here Flesh, it's by, thank you, Cole Arthur Riley. She speaks to the stories that our bodies hold and the healing we might find when we allow those stories to have life. In this book, it's an excellent book. I commend it to you. That's why I brought it for you. So if you're a visual learner, you can look at it and then go buy it. In this book, she speaks about liberation, justice, freedom, and healing. Liberation, justice, freedom, and healing. That's what my sermon's about. Liberation, justice, freedom, and healing. That's what she talks about. But she also says this. Just because the master lets you live in the house, it doesn't make you any freer. Just because I have a certain level of success, however you want to name that, I have a church, I'm, the, I'm a rector of a prominent Episcopal church in this diocese and in the communion. I am the rector. I am the first black woman of that church. And you should have already known that. Just because I have a certain level of success in this church, I am still a black woman in America struggling and striving for liberation. Some years ago, HBO did a special 
story. They were collecting stories of formerly enslaved people, and it was called Slave Narratives. And there's one narrative that I just want to share a portion of it with you. These are quotes from Linda Brent. When I was told that Dr. Flint had joined the Episcopal Church, I was much surprised. I supposed that religion had a purifying effect on the character of men. But the worst persecutions I endured from him were after he was a communicant. The conversation of the doctor the day after he had been confirmed certainly gave me no indication that he had renounced the devil in all his works. In answer to some of his usual talk, I reminded him that he had joined the church. Yes, Linda, said he, it was proper for me to do so. I am getting in years, and my position in society requires it, and it puts an end to this slang. You would do well to join the church. Well, Linda, you would do well to join the church, too. There are sinners enough in it already. I responded, if I could be allowed to live like a Christian, I should be glad. He responds, you can do what I require, and if you are faithful to me, you will be as virtuous as my wife. I answered that the Bible didn't say so. He exclaimed, what right have you who are my Negro to tell me about what you would like and what you wouldn't like? I am your master, and you shall obey me. She concludes by saying, no wonder the slaves sing, all Satan's churches here below, up to God's free church, I hope to go. Our own Episcopal narrative reminds us that historically, we have been complicit in maintaining the status quo of a racist power structure. And St. Columbus has done some brave work in uncovering the history of this church. And part of that learning confirms that while the demographic of this region, this area, had a high concentration of African Americans, these churchgoers were regulated to another building called St. George's. It's not an uncommon practice. The church where I serve at Epiphany, D.C., uh, at some point, Epiphany, D.C. and St. John's Lafayette Square got together and established St. Mary's Foggy Bottom for similar reasons. Uh, depending on whose version of the story you choose to listen to, you will hear that the black Episcopalians at Epiphany wanted to find a place where they could worship amongst themselves. But if you were to talk to some of the uh, participants at St. Mary's Foggy Bottom, you might hear that uh, they were asked to locate down in Foggy Bottom so that they could worship they want, the way they wanted to. So basically uninvited from being at Epiphany. Either way, what we ended up with was a place for black Episcopalians to worship separate from white Episcopalians. And as some of you may be aware, St. George's Chapel was closed and sold in the 1920s to help financially support uh, some of the stuff that was going on here at St. Columbus at the time. Faithful, honest, storytelling reveals to us that our beloved church 
is not free of the sin of dehumanizing those who look different from us, not free from the sin of marginalizing those whose money we consider less than ours. It is not free from the sin of centering voices that are boisterous and help make us feel comfortable in such a way that money and power continues to be unevenly distributed. And the Episcopal Church has made some significant strides toward respecting the worth and dignity of all human beings. And in some cases, we have been on the forefront of restoring the dignity of those who had been deemed by society as less than or unlovable. And just because we have African-American leadership now in the Episcopate, or just because we have LGBTQI leadership, or just because we have women in leadership, just because we have started the work does not mean that we have healed the wound. Just because the master lets you live in the house doesn't make you any freer. My colleague, our colleague, Dr. Gail Fisher-Stewart, wrote a book, Black and Episcopalian. Within the context of that book, she asked, is it possible to be black and Episcopalian? I haven't finished the book because I keep getting stuck on the question. Just because we started the work doesn't mean we've healed the wound. We have more to do as we strive towards claiming a more liberating narrative for the church and for the world. Today, our scripture points us towards healing. Not just any healing, a healing that challenges the dominant narrative. And I said, uh, I'm using... The dominant narrative, I'm using a definition by Walter Brueggemann, a dominant narrative is one that is egocentric, greed-driven, self, um, it's all about self. The opposite of that is a liberative narrative. So we're talking about restorative healing that reaches beyond human-defined boundaries. So our narrative today, the story that we were given, is a story of healing that begins with the utterances of an enslaved girl, an enslaved young girl, a person regulated to the margins, oftentimes moving around unnoticed. She's aware that Naaman had a disease in his skin, and so she tells the mistress, if only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samia, he would take his skin disease away. And the story goes on. I mean, that, it's one sentence. She gets one sentence, and the story goes on. It tells the story of the healing of Naaman, and this young girl is completely forgotten. But had she not spoken up, had she not spoken up, Naaman wouldn't have run off to see Elijah, Elisha. Maybe, now Elisha, 
Elisha gets gets to uh, uh, Naaman gets to Elisha, and he he gets he gets caught up in his own dominant narrative. I'm fancy. I'm special. I'm important. Why would you just send me to go wash in the water? How ridiculous. I'm Naaman, a military leader. Now, had it not been for that young girl, maybe he wouldn't have listened to his other enslaved folks who were traveling with him. And they're the ones who had the audacity to say, check yourself, man. Just go wash in the water. Though many viewed this young girl as small, weak, insignificant, powerless, she was regulated to one sentence. It was her quiet strength that helped demonstrate the greatness and omnipotence of God. So that's what we need today, I think. I think that's what we need today, is a quiet strength and a consistent, resilient faith. And we can't get through any of this. I know when you walk out the doors, you might turn on the news. There is nothing there, I guess, that's going to be overly uplifting. It's probably going to diminish And you may want to just throw your hands up in despair. We need to be rooted in faith in order to get through these tough, turbulent times. I'm one of the co-chairs of the Diocesan Reparations Task Force. And there was another group, the Working Group of Reparations. And as part of their work, they had Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas come speak. And the title of that time was called Repairing the Breach. This comes from Isaiah 58, that final sentence of that particular part of the chapter, Isaiah 58, 12. You are called to be repairs of the breach, restorers of the streets to live in. Repairing the breach. We're all acknowledging that something has been broken. She asserted that repairing the breach looks like acting on our unjust present and moving toward God's future justice. Now, um, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas is brilliant, off the charts. I'm just a little smart. And so I'm going to paraphrase her words with something I think that might resonate more broadly. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Acting in our unjust present, moving toward God's future justice. The larger question in the conversation was about the why and the how of of reparations. How do we even begin to have these conversations? 
Many in the diocese, many of you here who are serving on the anti-racism committee have been doing the hard work. I know that and uh, I think that there were some folks from St. Columbus who were doing some sacred ground circles. I know you've been doing the work to move towards being an anti-racist community. You have been uncovering and naming racist practices, and we have been trying to do that as a diocese so that we can unearth some of these evils that have shaped our denomination. Collectively, we have proclaimed that we want to be part of moving towards justice. We want to be part of moving closer to beloved community. We want to be part of making God's dream realized here in the midst of the nightmare. Reparations is one way of doing that. Dr. Douglas spoke to the how of repairing the breach by introducing a concept called crucifying praxis, a crucifying praxis. And she goes into some real depth around this. It is on uh, the website, the EDAL website. And if you go under um, Faith and Justice, I think our equity page, and then go to the reparations page, you can catch this video. I'm going to translate crucifying praxis to taking up our cross taking up our cross and following Jesus even to the hill of crucifixion. Now, taking up your cross isn't something that in 1974 I decided to take up my cross and so I've just taken it up. I don't think that's what we mean. Taking up your cross is a daily, sometimes hourly action. Being rooted in faith allows us to keep picking it up. And I will admit that sometimes it gets heavy, and so I have to put it down. But thank God for the body of Christ, because somebody else is still carrying it. It takes faith to see the face of God in all of God's people. It takes a consistent and resilient face to see the face of God staring back at you in the mirror. It takes faith to, as Dr. Douglas said, to get onto that arc that bends towards justice. It will take a consistent and resilient faith for some of us to get up each day and walk out into a world that despises us because we're black or because we're gay or because we're disabled or because we're trans or because we're Asian or because we're Jewish or because we're Muslim or Palestinian or refugee or poor or unhoused. It'll take faith to forgive all of those who have trespassed against us. Faith to vote with the expectation that my vote will count. It will take faith to consistently show up to take an active part in being the responsible stewards that God has called us to be. This Israelite girl in our story who was not given a name must have had an enduring sustaining faith. 
she had core beliefs that helped her stay sane when everything around her might cause her to lose her mind. With that faith in God, she could handle the bondage. She could handle getting paid less for the same work that her neighbor was doing across the street. She could endure trying to meet unreasonable and ridiculous deadlines. She could face being overlooked for promotions and bonuses. She had a compassionate, sustaining faith that kept her sane during her captivity. Now, here's the thing. We've all faced some type of injustice. And we are human. And we don't mind retributive justice. But this young girl did not render evil for either evil. She could have been bitter and angry, but she didn't let that hinder her opportunity to show mercy to others. She could see the face of God in her oppressor. She saw the mighty warrior Naaman, ego-driven for who he was, a child of God. She saw through his armor, she saw through his victories, she saw through his titles, and his recognition, and she prayed not for her freedom, but her captive's healing. In our psalm today, translated by Dr. Gaffney, the last verse says, Wisdom's womb is full of love and faithfulness, slow to anger and overflowing with faithful love. This young, unnamed, enslaved Israelite girl is an example of what faithful love looks like. So we've been challenged by our scriptures to continue to show love and to be compassionate consistently, to love faithfully even when that requires us to go against the dominant narrative as we saw Jesus do in our gospel. To love faithfully even when we are being hurt by the very systems and people we seek to help. One way to live into this invitation is to experience faith as an ongoing practice of reflection, forgiveness, and grace. If we understand healing to be liberating and true freedom for all of God's people, we will be required to faithfully, consistently, often step outside of our comfort zones. We will be called to engage in a crucifying practice, praxis, meaning the action of repeatedly taking up our cross repeatedly committing to the slow and steady work of justice. But if and and. But and if and and our willingness to do this work, if we are willing to be faithful and when we're willing to be faithful, we can fully participate 
We can be a force of transformation, doing our part, jumping on that ark as it bends closer to justice for all of God's people.